Welcome along. Um, it's great to have you here, but I guess what I wanted to talk about today is a bit about suffering. And it doesn't take much to realize that there's a lot of suffering in this world, isn't there? I mean, I was hearing again on the news about the Pakistani floods and how thousands of people have been killed and how millions of people are displaced. And, and yesterday in Indonesia, in Java, there was a train accident and 35 people were killed. Not even a, not even a big story in the papers. My friends, Mike and Kel, uh, have, are from a really uh, great church not, uh, in the western suburbs of Sydney. And, and at their church, it, it's been going through this real terrible time of suffering. There's been people that have been sick with cancer, young couples mainly affected, a number of people. And then their next-door neighbours recently had something tragic happen to them. Their next-door neighbours, who are members of their church as well, who are Christians, who love the Lord, they have a little boy, two years old, and one day they forgot to lock the gate to the pool. Very recently, actually. And they found their little boy lying on the bottom of their pool. And they jumped in, they grabbed him and pulled him out, and they tried to resuscitate him, and they flew him to hospital. And two days after, I got a a message from Mike to say that that little boy had died. There is suffering in this world, isn't there? And my question for you is, where are you at? Where are you at? Maybe you come here today burdened, and life is very difficult for you. Maybe at work it's very stressful. Maybe your marriage hasn't worked out like you expect. Maybe your husband or your wife has left you. Maybe you suffer with sickness. And no matter how hard you try, you just feel like you're never going to get better. Maybe you feel trapped and ashamed and tired and alone. Or maybe you're more like me and you haven't really ever experienced much suffering. My question for us today is, how do you respond to suffering? Or how do you prepare for when suffering comes to you? Because it's a question of when, isn't it? Not if. What do you do when life sits really heavily on your shoulders? And, and, and it's just so hard, you don't know what to do. What do you do? And I think one of the great things about the Psalms is that for for people in difficult times, they provide us with words that we can bring to God and meditate on and reflect when we just don't know what to say. And so we're going to be uh, looking today from Psalm Psalm number 9. So why don't you open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 9 and let's have a read of that together. Psalm number 9, verse 1. Psalm number 9. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations 
You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you have rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. And he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people's with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken. You, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds, for he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit that they made, in the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their hands. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall, shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. I think this is a really great psalm because it, it, it really shows us something about David's character and a way in which he was able to deal with really terrible suffering. It starts off in verse 1. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. You know, David wants to sing the praises of God with everything he's got. With all of my heart, with everything that's within me, he wants to tell of God's wonders. Not with his lips, not with all his great words, but with all of his heart. And that is all of his will, all of his passion, all of his might, all of his strength, his deep desires, the place that is only seen by God and is not seen by men. Verse 2, I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. I will be glad, I will be thankful. My joy will be in you. I will rejoice, I will sing praises to your name. You know, this sounds like the words of a man in good times, doesn't it? But by verse 13, we really see what his situation is. He says, be gracious to me, O God, O Lord. See my affliction from those who, those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death death. You know, what? He's, he's afflicted by those, who, by those who hate him, by his enemies who are trying to kill him, but yet he's standing at the gates of death. And what's he doing? He's crying out to God and yet singing his praises. How can this be? You know, how can Dave, David sing praises to God filled with such confidence of de deliverance in the midst of such terrible adversity? And this is the question that I want to try and answer in this message. 
And I think there are three, three key things that David does in the midst of affliction that create this, this paradoxical, this nonsensical, this, I can't believe it, response to suffering. The first thing, he builds this picture of a just judge seated on the throne with all of the world at his feet, doesn't he? Verse 7, but the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. The Lord sits, sits forever. He has established this throne for judgment. It's like this judge that is eternally sitting on a throne ready to judge the people, the world, the nations. But I don't know about you, but when you think of judges, what do you think of? I know someone here who works for a judge, so he might have a unique insight. But for, for some people, maybe you think judge, you think Indonesian judge. You think corrupt. You think Marcus Einfield. But no, no, that's totally not how David sees it. Verse 8, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. David remembers that God is not only a judge who stands over and above the whole world, but he is good. He is right. He is just. But more than that, the Lord is also, verse 9, a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. God is a refuge. The word here is, is for a place with high fortifications. I don't know if uh, any of you can relate to this, but have you ever wondered why kids are obsessed with tree houses? Or whether you were obsessed with trees? I went through a treehouse obsession, and, and it's just something about building this thing that's like high up in the air and far away from the rest of the world where you feel safe and protected. And probably if you ever saw it in my tree houses, you might not think they're so safe and protected. Uh, in fact, you might think they're quite dangerous. But, um, but it's the principle, isn't it? You know, at... David says that God is like this for those who are in difficulty. He is an all-sufficient shelter. He's like a place that you can go to escape the flaming arrows of your enemy. And that's why in verse 10 he can say, and I love this verse. He says, and those who know you, those who know your name will put their trust in you. Why? For you, O Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. You, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Those who know your name will know what? They will know that you're a just judge, a refuge powerful and mighty, and therefore they will trust you. They will trust you because you never forsake those who seek you. And this is my point. My point is that David is able to give thanks to God in the midst of his affliction because he remembers who God is. And if you come here today burdened and troubled by, uh, I don't know, by illnesses or mortgages or marriages, remember God's name. Remember that he is a just judge, a refuge in times of need. That he sits eternally on the throne above the world, above rulers and authorities and powers. Remember that he never forsakes. He will not forsake. He has not forsaken those who seek him. But what flows on from here is the second way, I think, um, in which David is able to praise God and that he 
remembers what God has promised. Verse 12, for he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. God is the God who avenges blood and, and those who are afflicted, he will avenge. Verse 16, the Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the works of their hands. That being a just judge, the wicked will be punished according to the things that they've done, according to their deeds. Verse 17, the wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. Who, who are the wicked? Those who forget God. But to forget God implies that they've known God and yet cast Him aside, doesn't it? And so the wicked are, here are those that have known God but, for, but forgotten about Him. Those who live as though there is no God. There is no just judge who will call them to account. And David knows that because God is a just God, the wicked will be punished. They will return to the grave, to Sheol, the land of the dead. Verse 18, for the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. You know, in the same way here, he looks forward to the judgment of God. The needy and the poor here, I think they really belong together. Um, it's not talking about the physical poor or those who physically suffer, but rather those who suffer for righteousness' sake. And David remembers that God will put things to right. And my point is that he remembers God's promise of judgment and can praise God in the midst of his affliction. You know, I think, I think so often when we think about God's judgment, we think about like underpants on the washing line. Um, I, don't, I don't know about you, but uh, apparently when you're putting out like the clothes on the washing line, and apparently the more public your place is, the more important this is, but apparently when you're putting out clothes on the washing line, it's really bad to put your undies on the outside, right? That's right. Like, I used to always get in trouble for that. It'd be like, mom would look outside and she'd be like, what are you doing? I was like, what? Who's going to care? You know, like, it's your underpants. Everyone's got underpants. But apparently, it's a big deal. Anyway, so you're meant to put your underpants on the inside, aren't you? You're meant to hide it away. And I think we treat God's judgment like that. You know, to, uh, this week, Steve and I were at Macquarie and we're uh, walking down to the uh, train station down at Macquarie University Station. And there's this guy preaching preaching down at the train station. He's calling out, the world is an oven and God's judgment's coming. And seriously, and he's got his Bible out. And you know what my first reaction was? I was ashamed. So I uh, took the exit down that was furthest away and went and walked right down to the other end of the platform and hid, pretty much. And then Steve calls me. He's like, hey, have you seen this guy? Come over here, come over here. And I'm like, don't talk to me. I want to hide from this guy. I don't want to be seen because I feel ashamed. I mean, it turns out he was mentally ill, but that's beside the point. My point is that, my point is that we, we often treat God's judgment as though it's a thing to be ashamed of, don't we? It's something that we don't want to talk about, but we shouldn't be because God is a just judge. He's good. And when He comes and judges the world, it will be right, it will be fair. And I think there's something in all of us that longs for things to be put right, isn't there? And you know... In times of difficulty, I really want us to remember God's promised judgment. Remember that He will one day put things to right. And for me, that's a huge comfort. You know, Braden and I went down to visit my dad yesterday. And my dad's in hospital um, because he's been so depressed that uh, he, he, can't, he can't deal with life. And for me to know that one day... God's going to come in judgment and He's going to put things to right is a huge comfort for me. 
this brings us to my final point. And that is that David, in the midst of his suffering, remembers what God has done for him. He recounts God's wonderful deeds. Verse 3. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. You know, David recounts all the wonderful things that God has done for him in the past. And so he is able to say, He who was once good to me will continue to be good to me and will deliver me. I remember all the good things that you have done for me, and so I have confidence that you will continue to be good to me. David is able to rejoice in the midst of adversity. Why? Because he recounts the wonderful deeds that God has done for him. Now, what are the things that you're thankful for? You know, here in Australia, we've got it pretty good, don't we? We've got uh, normally beautiful weather. (laughs) Not so much today. Sorry, visitors from Vancouver. It's not normally like this. We've got peace, easy access to education, wealth, health. Uh, we live in, in fact, one of the nicest places in the whole country, at least the most prosperous. We have so much to be thankful for. But David was thankful and was able to praise God in the midst of adversity because he remembered what God had done for him. So how much more? How much more ought we be thankful for what Christ has done for us? And my question for us is, do you come here today with thanks in your heart for what Christ has done for you? But if you're anything like me, so often the answer to that question will be no. You know, for a long time, and often, if I'm honest, The cross isn't something I get excited about. You know, I used to think of the cross as kind of like beginner's Christianity. You know, you you understand what Jesus did on the cross, how he died and paid for your sins, and you put your faith in him, and then you move on. But as it's been said, we never move on from the cross. We just come to a deeper understanding of the cross. And so if you're like me and you struggle... Give thanks for the cross. I really want you to hear this next story from the Bible. It comes from Luke chapter 7. I don't uh, need you to open. I just want you to listen and hear the story. One of the Pharisees asked him, asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner... When she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought him an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now, the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, and he said to himself, if this man... If this man were a prophet, he would know what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. 
And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money money lender had two debtors. He owed 500 denarii to one and the other 50. When they could not pay, he cancelled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he had cancelled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said, Simon, do you see this woman? I entered into your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You, you gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. But she, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And it's irony here. It's irony. The Pharisee loves little because he thinks that he's been forgiven little. But really, he is full of arrogance, he is full of self-righteousness, and he is full of pride. But the sinful woman, she knows that she is a terrible sinner. She knows that she's desperately in need of a saviour and is so full of love and thankfulness for the mercy of Jesus. You know what, friends? We are terrible sinners. Full of perverse lust and jealousy and greed and dishonesty and self-righteousness and covetousness. And, and before a just judge, we deserve death. But Christ on a cross bore all of our sins. He took the full wrath of God so that for those who trust in Him, there is now no condemnation. Friends, I want to suggest to you a possible cause for why perhaps you might sometimes feel like me and lack thankfulness for what Christ has done for you. And that is that you have forgotten or that you are unaware of the depth of sin that Christ paid for you on that cross. And I I really want to suggest to you, uh, pray. Pray for a deeper conviction of your sins. Seek counsel from other people. There's nothing like living with a, uh, someone that's a little bit different from you. I've experienced this living with my good friend Dingo Dave. Um, how counsel other people think differently of you to what you might imagine yourself to be like. You know, I often think that I'm a pretty good guy. That I've got all my stuff together. But apparently that's not the way everyone sees it, particularly people that know me well. And that's been a huge benefit. So I want to encourage you, if you're not aware of your sin, if in your mind you're convinced that you're a a good person, seek counsel from someone who knows you well and ask them, what's one thing? What's one thing that perhaps I need to take before the Lord and ask for forgiveness for? And the great thing is that forgiveness is there, isn't it? You know, C.J. Mahaney, a pastor that leads Sovereign Grace Ministries, when asked by people, how are you today? He replies, better than I deserve. That's the truth. If you're trusting in Christ, your sins are forgiven, though you deserve death. He bore it on a cross.
And every day is better than you deserve. And I want to ask us, how can we be anything but thankful for what Christ has done for us? But maybe, maybe for you it's different. Maybe that's not you, what I've talked about today. Maybe you've suffered much and you know what? You, you, you feel like a failure. Failed marriage, failed relationships, alone, nothing seems to work out. And you feel, though you know the gospel, that God just puts up with you. He just tolerates you. You know, you're like, like one of those annoying, I'm sure you can relate to this, one of those annoying people you're having those conversations with, and it's like, talk, 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 talk. And you're thinking to yourself, how can I get away? What's an excuse that I can get out of here and somehow avoid this person? They're just driving me crazy. And you feel that's what God is like with you, that He just wants to, He just puts up with you. You need to hear that if you're trusting in Jesus, God doesn't just put up with you. He rejoices over you. He looks at you and He doesn't see you. He sees His Son, Jesus, with whom He is well pleased. But I'm mindful that perhaps there's a third group of people amongst us today. And that is that perhaps you have never put your trust in Jesus before. You're not a Christian. You know, the Bible says that Christ, not considering equality with God a thing to be grasped, he humbled himself. He humbled himself and he made himself nothing, humbling himself even to death on a cross that you might be made right with him. You know, Jesus asks of you. He asks that you would repent. He asks that you would repent and that you would ask for forgiveness for the wrong things that you've done. He asks that you would believe, that you would believe that He came and that He bore the penalty that you deserved on a cross, that you might be made right with Him. And if you repent and you believe, you will be saved. You will be forever, eternally made right with God. You will forever, eternally have a great inheritance in heaven. And oh, the joy of knowing a precious Savior in Jesus. Oh, the joy of knowing that you're adopted into His family. And my prayer, please don't leave here without asking or putting your faith in Jesus. Please don't leave here without talking to someone if that's you. you know, I'd love to talk to you more about that. That would be my delight, my joy. But I'm begging you, talk to someone. And, and, and talk to someone today. You know, David was able to have this crazy response in the midst of suffering, that he could sing God's praise. And my prayer is that whether you're in the midst of suffering or you're yet to experience it, you would look to God and you would remember would remember who he is, that he is a king above kings and a just judge. You remember what he's promised, that he's coming back and he's going to put things to right. And you remember what he's done for you and Jesus on a cross and that you would be thankful. My prayer is that we would be a people that are marked by thankfulness for what Christ has done for us. 
So I'm going to invite up the, the band as we're finishing. We're going to sing a last song, but um, why don't you join with me in, in just praying. Um, Lord God, thank you so much for the grace that you have extended to us through the precious blood of, of your Son, our Lord Jesus. Thank you so much that while we were sinners, you sent your Son to die, that we might be set free. Father, I just pray that you would forgive this stubborn heart of mine that fails to thank you as I ought, that is often self-righteous, with a wrong sense of my own self-worth. Cut us, Lord. Cut us to the heart, Lord. Convict us deeply of our sinfulness that we might better understand the surpassing glory that is to be found in your cross, that we might come to know in a fresh way, Lord, the extent to which we are indebted to our mighty Savior and that this would lead to uncontainable joy and thanksgiving. Lord, whatever trials come our way, may we... May we never forget that you're a king above kings and that you've promised to put all things to right and that nothing is greater than you, the price that you paid, oh, the precious price that you paid on that cross. And we pray this in the name of your son, our Lord Jesus, died and rose again for us. Amen.